Heroes Were the Days. Thank you for joining me for the eighth installment of The Awakening by Kate Chopin. If you're reading along, today's episode encompasses chapters 32 through 36. Do you have your tea? I just have water because I have an exam in a few minutes. (laughs) Anyways, let's dive right back in. 32. When Mr. Pontellier learned of his wife's intention to abandon her home and take up her residence elsewhere, he immediately wrote her a letter of unqualified disapproval and remonstrance. She had given reasons which he was unwilling to acknowledge as adequate. He hoped she had not acted upon her rash impulse, and he begged her to consider first, foremost, and above all else, what people would say. He was not dreaming of scandal when he uttered this warning. That was a thing which would never have entered into his mind to consider in connection with his wife's name or his own. He was simply thinking of his financial integrity. It might get noised about that the Ponteliers had met with reverses and were forced to conduct their menage on a humbler scale than heretofore. It might do incalculable mischief to his business prospects. But remembering Edna's whimsical turn of mind of late, and foreseeing that she had immediately acted upon her impetuous determination, he grasped the situation with his usual promptness and handled it with his well-known business tact and cleverness. The same mail which brought to Edna his letter of disapproval carried instructions, the most minute instructions, to a well-known architect concerning the remodeling of his home, changes which he had long contemplated and which he desired carried forward during his temporary absence. Expert and reliable packers and movers were engaged to convey the furniture, carpets, pictures, everything movable in short, to places of security. And in an incredibly short time, the Pontellier house was turned over to the artisans. There was to be an addition, a small snuggery. There was to be frescoing and hardwood flooring was to be put into such rooms as had not yet been subjected to this improvement. Furthermore, in one of the daily papers appeared a brief notice to the effect that Mr. and Mrs. Pontellier were contemplating a summer sojourn abroad, and that their handsome residence on Esplanade Street was undergoing sumptuous alterations, and would not be ready for occupancy until their return. Mr. Pontellier had saved appearances. Edna admired the skill of his maneuver, and avoided any occasion to balk his intentions. When the situation as set forth by Mr. Pontellier was accepted and taken for granted, she was apparently satisfied that it should be so. The pigeon house pleased her. It at once assumed the intimate character of a home, while she herself invested it with a charm which it reflected like a warm glow. There was with her a feeling of having descended in the social scale, with a corresponding sense of having risen in the spiritual. Every step which she took toward relieving herself from obligations added to her strength and expansion as an individual. She began to look with her own eyes, to see and to apprehend the deeper undercurrents of life. No longer was she content to feed upon opinion when her own soul had invited her. After a little while, a few days in fact, Edna went up and spent a week with her children in Iberville. They were delicious February days, with all the summer's promise hovering in the air. How glad she was to see the children. She wept for very pleasure when she felt their little arms clasping her, their hard, ruddy cheeks pressed against her own glowing cheeks. She looked into their faces with hungry eyes that could not be satisfied with looking, and what stories they had to tell their mother, about the pigs, the cows, the mules, about riding to the mill behind Glue Glue, fishing back in the lake with their uncle Jasper, picking pecans with Lydie's little black brood, and hauling chips in their express wagon. It was a thousand times more fun to haul real chips for old lame Susie's real fire than to drive painted blocks along the banquette on Esplanade Street. She went with them herself to see the pigs and the cows, to look at the workers laying the cane, to thrash the pecan trees, and catch fish in the back lake. She lived with them a whole week long, giving them all of herself, and gathering and filling herself with their young existence. They listened, breathless, when she told them the house in Esplanade Street was crowded with workmen, hammering, nailing, sawing, and filling the place with clatter. They wanted to know where their bed was, what had been done with their rocking horse, and where did Joe sleep, and where had Ellen gone, and the cook? But above all, they were fired with a desire to see the little house around the block. Was there any place to play? Were there any boys next door? Raoul, with pessimistic foreboding, was convinced that there were only girls next door. Where would they sleep, and where would Papa sleep? She told them the fairies would fix it all right. 
The old madame was charmed with Edna's visit, and showered all manner of delicate attentions upon her. She was delighted to know that the Esplanade Street house was in a dismantled condition. It gave her the promise and pretext to keep the children indefinitely. It was with a wrench and a pang that Edna left her children. She carried away with her the sound of their voices and the touch of their cheeks. All along the journey homeward, their presence lingered with her, like the memory of a delicious song. But by the time she had regained the city, the song no longer echoed in her soul. She was again alone. 33. It happens sometimes when Edna went to see Mademoiselle Reese that the little musician was absent, giving a lesson or making some small necessary household purchase. The key was always left in a secret hiding place in the entry, which Edna knew. If Mademoiselle happened to be away, Edna would usually enter and wait for her return. When she knocked at Mademoiselle Reese's door one afternoon, there was no response, so unlocking the door, as usual, she entered and found the apartment deserted, as she had expected. Her day had been quite filled up, and it was for a rest, for a refuge, and to talk about Robert, that she sought out her friend. She had worked at her canvas, a young Italian character study, all the morning, completing the work without the model, but there had been many interruptions, some incident to her modest housekeeping and others of a social nature. Madame Ratignolle had dragged herself over, avoiding the two public thoroughfares, she said. She complained that Edna had neglected her much of late. Besides, she was consumed with curiosity to see the little house and the manner in which it was conducted. She wanted to hear all about the dinner party. Monsieur Ratignolle had left so early. What had happened after he left? The champagne and grapes which Edna sent over were too delicious. She had so little appetite. They had refreshed and toned her stomach. Where on earth was she going to put Mr. Pontellier in that little house, and the boys? And then she made Edna promise to go to her when her hour of trial overtook her. At any time, any time of the day or night, dear, Edna assured her. Before leaving, Madame Ratignolle said, In some way, you seem to me like a child, Edna. You seem to act without a certain amount of reflection which is necessary in this life. That is the reason I want to say you mustn't mind if I advise you to be a little careful while you are living here alone. Why don't you have someone come and stay with you? Wouldn't Mademoiselle Reese come? No, she wouldn't wish to come, and I shouldn't want her always with me. Well, the reason. You know how evil-minded the world is. Someone was talking of Alsay Arabian visiting you. Of course, it wouldn't matter if Mr. Arabian had not such a dreadful reputation. Monsieur Ratignol was telling me that his attentions alone are considered enough to ruin a woman's name. Does he boast of his successes? asked Edna indifferently, squinting at her picture. No, I think not. I believe he is a decent fellow, as far as that goes. But his character is so well known among the men. I shan't be able to come back and see you. It was very, very imprudent today. Mind the step, cried Edna. Don't neglect me, entreated Madame Ratignolle. And don't mind what I said about Arabian or having someone to stay with you. Of course not, Edna laughed. You may say anything you like to me. They kissed each other goodbye. Madame Ratignolle had not far to go, and Edna stood on the porch a while watching her walk down the street. Then in the afternoon, Mrs. Merriman and Mrs. Highcamp had made their party call. Edna felt that they might have dispensed with the formality. They had also come to invite her to play Vontaillon one evening at Mrs. Merriman's. She was asked to go early, to dinner, and Mr. Merriman or Mr. Arabian would take her home. Edna accepted in a half-hearted way. She sometimes felt very tired of Mrs. Highcamp and Mrs. Merriman. Late in the afternoon, she sought refuge with Mademoiselle Reese and stayed there alone, waiting for her, feeling a kind of repose invade her with the very atmosphere of the shabby, unpretentious little room. Edna sat at the window, which looked out over the housetops and across the river. The window frame was filled with pots of flowers, and she sat and picked the dry leaves from a rose geranium. The day was warm, and the breeze which blew from the river was very pleasant. She removed her hat and laid it on the piano. She went on picking the leaves and digging around the plants with her hat pin. Once she thought she heard Mademoiselle Reese approaching, but it was a young black girl who came in, bringing a small bundle of laundry, which she deposited in the adjoining room and went away. Edna seated herself at the piano and softly picked out with one hand the bars of a piece of music which lay open before her. A half hour went by. There was the occasional sound of people going and coming in the lower hall. She was growing interested in her occupation of picking out the aria when there was a second rap at the door. She vaguely wondered what these people did when they found Mademoiselle's door locked. 
Come in, she called, turning her face toward the door. And this time it was Robert Lebrun who presented himself. She attempted to rise. She could not have done so without betraying the agitation which mastered her at sight of him, so she fell back upon the stool, only exclaiming, Why, Robert! He came and clasped her hand, seemingly without knowing what he was saying or doing. Mrs. Pontellier, how do you happen? Oh, well, how you look? Is Mademoiselle Reese not here? I never expected to see you. When did you come back? asked Edna in an unsteady voice, wiping her face with her handkerchief. She seemed ill at ease on the piano stool, and he begged her to take the chair by the window. She did so mechanically, while he seated himself on the stool. I returned day before yesterday, he answered, while he leaned his arm on the keys, bringing forth a crash of discordant sound. Day before yesterday, she repeated aloud, and went on thinking to herself, day before yesterday, in a sort of an uncomprehending way. She had pictured him seeking her at the very first hour, and he had lived under the same sky since day before yesterday, while only by accident had he stumbled upon her. Mademoiselle must have lied when she said, poor fool, he loves you. Day before yesterday, she repeated, breaking off a spray of Mademoiselle's geranium. Then if you had not met me here today, you wouldn't... When? That is, didn't you mean to come and see me? Of course I should have gone to see you. There have been so many things. He turned to the leaves of Mademoiselle's music nervously. I started in at once yesterday with the old firm. After all, there is as much chance for me here as there was there. That is, I might find it profitable some day. The Mexicans were not very congenial. So he had come back because the Mexicans were not congenial. Because business was as profitable here as there. Because of any reason, and not because he cared to be near her. She remembered the day she sat on the floor, turning the pages of his letter, seeking the reason which was left untold. She had not noticed how he looked, only feeling his presence, but she had turned deliberately and observed him. After all, he had been absent but a few months, and was not changed. His hair, the color of hers, waved back from his temples in the same way as before. His skin was not more burned than it had been at Grand Isle. She found in his eyes, when he looked at her for one silent moment, the same tender caress, with an added warmth and entreaty which had not been there before, the same glance which had penetrated to the sleeping places of her soul and awakened them. A hundred times Edna had pictured Robert's return, and imagined their first meeting. It was usually at her home, whither he had sought her out at once. She always fancied him expressing or betraying in some way his love for her. And here, the reality was that they sat ten feet apart, she at the window, crushing geranium leaves in her hand, and smelling them, he twirling around on the piano stool, saying, I was very much surprised to hear Mr. Pontellier's absence. It's a wonder Mademoiselle Reese did not tell me. And you're moving. Mother told me yesterday. I should think you would have gone to New York with him, or to Iberville with the children, rather than be bothered here with housekeeping. And you are going abroad, too, I hear. We shan't have you at a Grand Isle next summer, it won't seem. Do you see much of Mademoiselle Reese? She often spoke of you in the few letters she wrote. Do you remember that you promised to write to me when you went away? A flush overspread his whole face. I couldn't believe that my letters would be of any interest to you. That is an excuse. It isn't the truth. Edna reached for her hat on the piano. She adjusted it, sticking the hat pin through the heavy coil of hair with some deliberation. Are you not going to wait for Mademoiselle Reese? asked Robert. No, I have found when she is absent this long, she is liable not to come back till late. She drew on her gloves and Robert picked up his hat. Won't you wait for her? asked Edna. Not if you think she will not be back till late, adding as if suddenly aware of some discourtesy in his speech. And I should miss the pleasure of walking home with you. Edna locked the door and put the key back in its hiding place. They went together, picking their way across muddy streets and sidewalks encumbered with the cheap display of small tradesmen. Part of the distance they rode in the car, and after disembarking, passed the Pontellier mansion, which looked broken and half-torn asunder. Robert had never known the house, and looked at it with interest. "'I never knew you in your home,' he remarked. "'I am glad you did not.' "'Why?' She did not answer. They went on around the corner, and it seemed as if her dreams were coming true after all, when he followed her into the little house. "'You must stay and dine with me, Robert. You see I am all alone, and it is so long since I have seen you.' There is so much I want to ask you. She took off her hat and gloves. He stood irresolute, making some excuse about his mother who expected him. 
He even muttered something about an engagement. She struck a match and lit the lamp on the table. It was growing dusk. When he saw her face in the lamplight, looking pained, with all the soft lines gone out of it, he threw his hat aside and seated himself. "'Oh, you know I want to stay if you will let me,' he exclaimed. All the softness came back. She laughed and went and put her hand on his shoulder. "'This is the first moment you have seemed like the old Robert. I'll go tell Celestine.' She hurried away to tell Celestine to set an extra place. She even sent her off in search of some added delicacy which she had not thought of for herself, and she recommended great care in dripping the coffee and having the omelette done to a proper turn. When she re-entered, Robert was turning over magazines, sketches, and things that lay upon the table in great disorder. He picked up a photograph and exclaimed, "'I'll say our bean! What on earth is his picture doing here?' "'I tried to make a sketch of his head one day,' answered Edna, "'and he thought the photograph might help me. "'It was at the other house. I thought it had been left there. "'I must have packed it up with my drawing materials. "'I should think you would give it back to him if you had finished with it. "'Oh, I have a great many such photographs. I never think of returning them. "'They don't amount to anything.' "'Robert kept on looking at the picture.' "'It seems to me. Do you think his head worth drawing? "'Is he a friend of Mr. Pontellier's? You never said you knew him.' "'He isn't a friend of Mr. Pontellier's. He's a friend of mine. "'I always knew him. That is, it is only of late that I know him pretty well. "'But I'd rather talk about you, and know what you have been seeing and doing and feeling out there in Mexico.' "'Robert threw aside the picture. "'I've been seeing the waves in the white beach of Grand Isle, "'the quiet, grassy street of the Chenier, the old fort at Grand Terre. "'I've been working like a machine and feeling like a lost soul. "'There was nothing interesting.' She leaned her head upon her hand to shade her eyes from the light. "'And what have you been seeing and doing and feeling all these days?' he asked. "'I've been seeing the waves in the white beach of Grand Isle, the quiet, grassy street at the Chenier Caminata, the old sunny fort at Grand Terre. I've been working with a little more comprehension than a machine, and still feeling like a lost soul. There was nothing interesting.' "'Mrs. Pontellier, you are cruel,' he said, with feeling, closing his eyes and resting his head back in his chair. They remained in silence till old Celestine announced dinner. 34. The dining room was very small. Edna's round mahogany would have almost filled it. As it was, there was but a step or two from the little table to the kitchen, to the mantel, the small buffet, and the side door that opened out on the narrow brick paved yard. A certain degree of ceremony settled upon them with the announcement of dinner. There was no return to personalities. Robert related incidents of his sojourn in Mexico, and Edna talked of events likely to interest him, which had occurred during his absence. The dinner was of ordinary quality, except for the few delicacies which she had sent out to purchase. Old Celestine, with a bandana tignon twisted about her head, hobbled in and out, taking a personal interest in everything, and she lingered occasionally to talk patois with Robert, whom she had known as a boy. He went out to a neighboring cigar stand to purchase cigarette papers, and when he came back he found that Celestine had served the black coffee in the parlor. "'Perhaps I shouldn't have come back,' he said. "'When you are tired of me, tell me to go.' "'You never tire me. You must have forgotten the hours and hours at Grand Isle in which we grew accustomed to each other and used to be in together.' "'I have forgotten nothing at Grand Isle,' he said, not looking at her but rolling a cigarette. His tobacco pouch, which he laid upon the table, was a fantastic embroidered silk affair, evidently the handiwork of a woman. "'You used to carry your tobacco in a rubber pouch,' said Edna, picking up the pouch and examining the needlework. "'Yes, it was lost. Where did you buy this one? In Mexico?' "'It was given to me by a Veracruz girl. They are very generous,' he replied, striking a match and lighting a cigarette. "'They are very handsome, I suppose, those Mexican women. Very picturesque, with their black eyes and their lace scarves.' Some are, others are hideous, just as you find women everywhere. What was she like, the one who gave you the pouch? You must have known her very well. She was very ordinary. She wasn't of the slightest importance. I knew her well enough. Did you visit at her house? Was it interesting? I should like to know and hear about the people you met, and the impressions they made on you. There are some people who leave impressions not so lasting as the imprint of an oar upon the water. Was she such a one? It would be ungenerous for me to admit that she was of that order and kind. He thrust the pouch back in his pocket, as if to put away the subject with the trifle which had brought it up. 
Arabian dropped in with a message from Mrs. Merriman to say that the card party was postponed on account of the illness of one of her children. How do you do, Arabian? said Robert, rising from the obscurity. Oh, Lebrun, to be sure. I heard yesterday you were back. How do they treat you down in Mexico? Fairly well. But not well enough to keep you there. Stunning girls, though, in Mexico. I thought I should never get away from Veracruz when I was down there a couple of years ago. Did they embroider slippers and tobacco pouches and hatbands and things for you? asked Edna. Oh, my, no. I didn't get so deep in their regard. I fear they made more impression on me than I made on them. You were less fortunate than Robert, then. I am always less fortunate than Robert. Has he been imparting tender confidences? I've been imposing myself long enough, said Robert, rising and shaking hands with Edna. Please convey my regards to Mr. Pontellier when you write. He shook hands with Arabine and went away. Fine fellow, that Lebrun, said Arabine when Robert had gone. I never heard you speak of him. I knew him last summer at Grand Isle, she replied. Here's that photograph of yours. Don't you want it? What do I want with it? Throw it away. She threw it back on the table. I'm not going to Mrs. Merriman's, she said. If you see her, tell her so. But perhaps I had better write. I think I shall write now and say that I am sorry her child is sick and tell her not to count on me. It would be a good scheme, acquiesced Arabine. I don't blame you, stupid lot. Edna opened the blotter and, having procured paper and pen, began to write the note. Arabine lit a cigar and read the evening paper which he had in his pocket. What is the date? she asked. He told her. Will you mail this for me when you go out? Certainly. He read to her little bits out of the newspaper while she straightened things on the table. What do you want to do? he asked, throwing aside the paper. Do you want to go out for a walk or a drive or anything? It would be a fine night to drive. No, I don't want to do anything but just be quiet. You go away and amuse yourself. Don't stay. I'll go away if I must, but I shan't amuse myself. You know that I only live when I am near you. He stood up to bid her good night. Is that one of the things you always say to women? I have said it before, but I don't think I ever came so near meaning it, he answered with a smile. There were no warm lights in her eyes, only a dreamy, absent look. Good night, I adore you, sleep well, he said, and he kissed her hand and went away. She stayed alone in a kind of reverie, a sort of stupor. Step by step she lived over every instant of the time she had been with Robert after he had entered Mademoiselle Reese's door. She recalled his words, his looks, how few and meager they had been for her hungry heart. A vision, a transcendently seductive vision, of a Mexican girl arose before her. She writhed with a jealous pang. She wondered when he would come back. He had not said he would come back. She had been with him, had heard his voice, and touched his hand. But some way, he had seemed nearer to her off there in Mexico. 35. The morning was full of sunlight and hope. Edna could see before her no denial, only the promise of excessive joy. She lay in bed awake with bright eyes full of speculation. He loves you, poor fool. If she could but get that conviction firmly fixed in her mind, what mattered about the rest? She felt she had been childish and unwise the night before in giving herself over to despondency. She recapitulated the motives which no doubt explained Robert's reserve. They were not insurmountable. They would not hold if he really loved her. They could not hold against her own passion, which he must come to realize in time. She pictured him going to his business that morning. She even saw how he was dressed. How he walked down one street and turned to the corner of another, saw him bending over his desk, talking to people who entered the office, going to his lunch, and perhaps watching for her on the street. He would come to her in the afternoon or evening, sit and roll a cigarette, talk a little, and go away as he had done the night before. But how delicious it would be to have him there with her. She would have no regrets, nor seek to penetrate his reserve if he still chose to wear it. Edna ate her breakfast only half-dressed. The maid brought her a delicious printed scrawl from Raoul, expressing his love, asking her to send him some bonbons, and telling her they had found that morning ten tiny white pigs all lying in a row beside Liddy's big white pig. A letter also came from her husband, saying he hoped to be back early in March, and then they would get ready for that journey abroad which he had promised her so long, which he felt now fully able to afford. He felt able to travel as people should, without any thought of small economies. 
thanks to his recent speculations in Wall Street. Much to her surprise, she received a note from Arabine, written at midnight from the club. It was to say good morning to her, to hope she had slept well, to assure her of his devotion, which he trusted she in some faintest manner returned. All these letters were pleasing to her. She answered the children in a cheerful frame of mind, promising them bonbons and congratulating them upon their happy find of the little pigs. She answered her husband with friendly evasiveness, not with any fixed design to mislead him, only because all sins of reality had gone out of her life. She had abandoned herself to fate and awaited the consequences with indifference. To Arabine's note, she made no reply. She put it under Celestine's stove lid. Edna worked several hours with much spirit. She saw no one but a picture dealer, who asked her if it were true she was going abroad to study in Paris. She said possibly she might, and he negotiated with her for some Parisian studies to reach him in time for the holiday trade in December. Robert did not come that day. She was keenly disappointed. He did not come the following day, nor the next. Each morning she awoke with hope, and each night she was a prey to despondency. She was tempted to seek him out, but far from yielding to the impulse, she avoided any occasion which might throw her in his way. She did not go to Mademoiselle Reese's, nor pass by Madame Lebrun's, as she might have done if he had still been in Mexico. When Arabian one night urged her to drive with him, she went, out to the lake on the shell road. His horses were full of metal, and even a little unmanageable. She liked the rapid gait at which they spun along, and the quick, sharp sound of the horse's hooves on the hard road. They did not stop anywhere to eat or to drink. Arabian was not needlessly imprudent. But they ate and they drank when they regained Edna's little dining room, which was comparatively early in the evening. It was late when he left her. It was getting to be more than a passing whim with Arabian to see her and be with her. He had detected the latent sensuality, which unfolded under his delicate sense of her nature's requirements like a torpid, torrid, sensitive blossom. There was no despondency when she fell asleep that night, nor was there hope when she awoke in the morning. 36. There was a garden out in the suburbs, a small, leafy corner with a few green tables under the orange trees. An old cat slept all day on the stone step in the sun, and an old mulatress slept her idle hours away in her chair at the open window till someone happened to knock on one of the green tables. She had milk and cream cheese to sell, and bread and butter. There was no one who could make such excellent coffee or fry a chicken so golden brown as she. The place was too modest to attract the attention of people of fashion, and so quiet as to have escaped the notice of those in search of pleasure and dissipation. Edna had discovered it accidentally one day, when the high-board gate stood ajar. She caught sight of a little green table, blotched with the checkered sunlight that filtered through the quivering leaves overhead. Within, she had found the slumbering mulatress, the drowsy cat, and a glass of milk which reminded her of the milk she had tasted in Iberville. She often stopped there during her perambulations, sometimes taking a book with her and sitting an hour or two under the trees when she found the place deserted. Once or twice, she took a quiet dinner there alone, having instructed Celestine beforehand to prepare no dinner at home. It was the last place in the city where she would have expected to meet anyone she knew. Still, she was not astonished when, as she was partaking of a modest dinner late in the afternoon, looking into an open book, stroking the cat, which had made friends with her, she was not greatly astonished to see Robert come in at the tall garden gate. "'I am destined to see you only by accident,' she said, shoving the cat off of the chair beside her. He was surprised, ill at ease, almost embarrassed at meeting her thus so unexpectedly. "'Do you come here often?' he asked. "'I almost live here,' she said. "'I used to drop in very often for a cup of Katich's good coffee. This is the first time since I came back.' She'll bring you a plate, and you will share my dinner. There's always enough for two, even three. Edna had intended to be indifferent and as reserved as he when she met him. She had reached the determination by a laborious train of reasoning, incident to one of her despondent moods. But her resolve melted when she saw him before her, seated there beside her in the little garden, as if a designing providence had led him into her path. Why have you kept away from me, Robert? she asked, closing the book that lay open upon the table. Why are you so personal, Mrs. Pontellier? Why do you force me to idiotic subterfuges? he exclaimed with sudden warmth. I suppose there's no use telling you I've been very busy, or that I've been sick, or that I've been to see you and not found you at home. 
Please let me off with any one of these excuses. You are the embodiment of selfishness, she said. You save yourself something, I don't know what, but there is some selfish motive, and in sparing yourself you never consider for a moment what I think, or how I feel your neglect and indifference. I suppose this is what you would call unwomanly, but I have got into a habit of expressing myself. It doesn't matter to me, and you may think me unwomanly if you like. No, I only think you are cruel, as I said the other day. Maybe not intentionally cruel, but you seem to be forcing me into disclosures which can result in nothing, as if you would have me bear a wound for the pleasure of looking at it without the intention or power of healing it. I'm spoiling your dinner, Robert. Never mind what I say. You haven't eaten a morsel. I only came in for a cup of coffee. His sensitive face was all disfigured with excitement. Isn't this a delightful place? She remarked. I am so glad it has never actually been discovered. It is so quiet, so sweet here. Do you notice there is scarcely a sound to be heard? It's so out of the way, and a good walk from the car. However, I don't mind walking. I always feel so sorry for women who don't like to walk. They miss so much. So many rare little glimpses of life. And we women learn so little of life on the whole. Katisha's coffee is always hot. I don't know how she manages it here in the open air. Celestine's coffee gets cold, bringing it from the kitchen to the dining room. Three lumps? How can you drink it so sweet? Take some of the crust with your chop. It's so biting and crisp. Then there's the advantage of being able to smoke with your coffee out here. Now in the city... "'Aren't you going to smoke?' "'After a while,' he said, laying a cigar on the table. "'Who gave it to you?' she laughed. "'I bought it. I suppose I'm getting reckless. I bought a whole box.' She was determined not to be personal again and make him uncomfortable. The cat made friends with him and climbed into his lap when he smoked his cigar. He stroked her silky fur and talked a little about her. He looked at Edna's book, which he had read, and he told her the end to save her the trouble of wading through it, he said. Again, he accompanied her back to her home, and it was after dusk when they reached the little pigeon house. She did not ask him to remain, which he was grateful for, as it permitted him to stay without the discomfort of blundering through an excuse which he had no intention of considering. He helped her to light the lamp, then she went into her room to take off her hat and to bathe her face and hands. When she came back, Robert was not examining the pictures and magazines as before. He sat off in the shadow, leaning his head back on the chair as if in a reverie. Edna lingered a moment beside the table, arranging the books there. Then she went across the room to where he sat. She bent over the arm of his chair and called his name. "'Robert,' she said, "'are you asleep?' "'No,' he answered, looking up at her. She leaned over and kissed him, a soft, cool, delicate kiss, whose voluptuous sting penetrated his whole being. Then she moved away from him. He followed and took her in his arms, just holding her close to him. She put her hand up to his face and pressed his cheek against her own. The action was full of love and tenderness. He sought her lips again. Then he drew her down upon the sofa beside him and held her hand in both of his. "'Now you know,' he said. "'Now you know what I have been fighting against since last summer at Grand Isle, what drove me away and drove me back again.' "'Why have you been fighting against it?' she asked. Her face glowed with soft lights. "'Why? Because you were not free. You were Léonce Pontellier's wife. I couldn't help loving you if you were ten times his wife, but so long as I went away from you and kept away, I could help telling you so.' She put her free hand up to his shoulder and then against his cheek, rubbing it softly. He kissed her again. His face was warm and flushed. "'There in Mexico I was thinking of you all the time and longing for you.' "'But not writing to me,' she interrupted. "'Something put into my head that you cared for me, and I lost my senses.' I forgot everything but a wild dream of your some way becoming my wife. Your wife? Religion, loyalty, everything would give way if only you cared. Then you must have forgotten that I was Léonce Pontellier's wife. Oh, I was demented, dreaming of wild, impossible things, recalling men who had set their wives free. We have heard of such things. Yes, we have heard of such things. I came back full of vague, mad intentions, and when I got here... When you got here, you never came near me. She was still caressing his cheek. I realized what occur I was to dream of such a thing, even if you had been willing. She took his face between her hands and looked into it as if she would never withdraw her eyes more. She kissed him on the forehead, the eyes, the cheeks, and the lips. 
You've been a very, very foolish boy, wasting your time dreaming of impossible things when you speak of Mr. Pontellier setting me free. I am no longer one of Mr. Pontellier's possessions to dispose of or not. I give myself where I choose. If he were to say, Here, Robert, take her and be happy. She is yours. I should laugh at you both. His face grew a little white. What do you mean? he asked. There was a knock at the door. Old Celestine came in to say that Madame Ratignolle's servant had come around the back way with a message that Madame had been taken sick and begged Mrs. Pontellier to go to her immediately. Yes, yes, said Edna, rising. I promised. Tell her yes. To wait for me. I'll go back with her. Let me walk over with you, offered Robert. No, she said. I will go with the servant. She went into her room to put on her hat, and when she came in again, she sat once more upon the sofa beside him. He had not stirred. She put her arms about his neck. Goodbye, my sweet Robert. Tell me goodbye. He kissed her with a degree of passion, which had not before entered into his caress, and strained her to him. I love you, she whispered. Only you. No one but you. It was you who awoke me last summer out of a lifelong stupid dream. Oh, you have made me so unhappy with your indifference. Oh, I have suffered, suffered. Now you are here, we shall love each other, my Robert. We shall be everything to each other. Nothing else in the world is of any consequence. I must go to my friend, but you will wait for me. No matter how late, you will wait for me, Robert. Don't go. Don't go. Oh, Edna, stay with me, he pleaded. Why should you go? Stay with me. Stay with me. I shall come back as soon as I can. I shall find you here. She buried her face in his neck and said goodbye again. Her seductive voice, together with his great love for her, had enthralled his senses, had deprived him of every impulse but the longing to hold her and keep her. Okay, before we get into a discussion of these chapters, I just wanted to remind you how I am able to make this podcast happen. Okay, so these chapters are a little bit of a doozy. There are a lot to unpack, so let's let's do our best in unpacking them. So, Edna is really going through it. Um, Mr. Pontellier, kind of like I expected, was like, absolutely not, but knowing his wife, he knew she was going to do it anyways, so he was like, okay, how can I best kind of cover this up? Um, he wasn't really worried about anything except the fact that people might think he was poor if they were having to move into such a tiny house, and being in finance, uh, clearly that's not something that he wants being spread about. So he came up with this really elaborate plan of why she was moving out and they were having the house redone and they're going to go on a big vacation, all of this stuff, and everybody bought it. So it worked out good for him. Um, the fact that he didn't come home, I think, says something about him. I haven't quite decided what it says about him. Um, on the one hand, he's kind of following doctor's orders. He's doing what the doctor said, leaving her alone, letting her do her thing. But on the other hand, I feel like if I was in that position, I would be pretty worried um, that things were going to continue to escalate, and so I would try to find a, a way to at least come back for, like, a weekend. Um, but she goes and sees her kids, which is great. She has a good time with them. She is loving. She's caring. Um, so that's that's a positive. Um, things continue to get kind of funky with our being, but things get even more funky now that Robert is back. So now she's, she's being mischievous with multiple men. I mean, we saw that coming. <laughs> I can't, I can't say much about that, that we, we didn't see coming. But here's, here's the funky bit. I think she will be just as dissatisfied with Robert when it all is said and done. I think that she has been through so much in her life and coming to terms with it now, I think she would never be satisfied with anyone who wanted to see her as 
possession as theirs. And we see kind of at the end of this last chapter here that Robert is, is just wanting the same thing that Mr. Pontellier has, which is what Edna is unsatisfied with. I think she would be fine if the situation between her and her husband was a little bit different and she was given kind of the freedom that she's now forcibly taking, basically. Um, I think things would be a lot different if she felt like she had a degree of freedom, but I kind of see Robert as, like, a summer fling. Like, the summer, it was very much so, like, sexual tension and her feeling like that sense of something could happen but nothing's happening and then he was gone for a while and the whole, like, absence makes the heart grow fonder sort of thing. And now that he's back, things are, like, hot and heavy really quick. I think it's gonna stay like that for a little while, and then she's going to be like, this is exactly the same as how I feel with my husband. Like, I still don't like the feeling of being owned. I don't like feeling like I am somebody's property. I don't want to feel like anybody has control over me except myself. So, yes, things are getting a little bit steamy, um... We're getting closer and closer to the point where she's going to have to make some changes when her husband comes back. Um, she's saying that she doesn't necessarily agree that she's going to go to uh, this, like, vacation with her husband. She said she didn't want to, like, purposefully mislead him, but she was trying to not really cause a scene while also saying, hey, this is maybe not what's going to happen. So, I'm... I'm a little worried <laughs> that we only have a few more chapters left and that things have not necessarily come to any kind of resolution. We are not seeing things get any amount better. Things are only continuing to get worse. And I really think that Edna's attempts to find some degree of purpose and happiness in her life are eventually going to just come back to this she wakes up with hope and she goes to bed like with despair and despondency I think it's I don't think Robert's going to fix that <laughs> I really don't think he's going to kind of play the role that she thinks he is so we'll see what happens we'll see how things go um I I'm hoping that we get to some kind of resolution, but I'm not, I'm not really holding out for it. We're just gonna hope for the best and see what happens. Thanks for listening. This has been chapters 32 through 36 of The Awakening by Kate Chopin. Tune in on Monday for our last episode covering chapters 37 through 39. 